I'm just very annoyed at my profession, to be honest, although there are very there are lots of vulnerable exceptions. But, you know, I went into philosophy thinking that here was an arena where we could slug it out conversationally. And I know people who will philosophers who will argue with me about literally anything. Um, I used to be Facebook friends with lots of philosophers, not so much anymore, but, you know, I used to be <laughs> friends with them and I'd see them arguing about tiny, tiny matters that no one gives a toss about out in the world. And then this comes along, this big issue about identity and politics and policies and, you know, and they suddenly just go deathly quiet. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, Kathleen Stock, is a professor of philosophy at the University of Sussex in England. For most of her career, Kathleen was known primarily as a scholar on philosophical questions related to fiction and the concept of imagination. But in 2018, she began to speak and write about the issue of gender identity, specifically why her colleagues in philosophy were so reluctant to discuss something so seemingly ripe for the kind of inquiry philosophers live for. The backlash came swiftly, but so did tacit messages of support. And over time, Kathleen has become a leading voice on gender identity theory, policy reform, and their effects on women and girls. She spoke with me about this unexpected turn and the tension between recognizing the rights of transgender people and recognizing material facts. Perhaps most usefully of all, she explains the difference between sex and gender, which, admit it, you still may be confused about. A few quick notes about this episode. First, as with the last few, there is a brief message from the new productivity platform, The Process, about halfway through. For ad-free versions of this podcast, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. Also, at one point in the conversation, I refer to a recent guest I had on talking about the Academic Freedom Alliance, or AFA. I mistakenly call it the Academic Freedom Association. It's the Academic Freedom Alliance. Anyway, here's my conversation with Kathleen Stock. Kathleen Stock, welcome to the podcast. Hi. You are a philosopher. You teach philosophy at the University of Sussex. Uh, you write in your book that for most of your career, you have focused on questions having to do with fiction and imagination. You are not a culture warrior. You're not someone who's made a career out of making purposely polarizing statements, yet you become a voice in this incredibly contentious debate having to do with gender identity, and by definition, you've become controversial. How did you find yourself in this space? What, what drew you to it? Um, well, I am gay, and so I have, um, I came out relatively late in life, and uh, I immediately became aware of a whole set of issues around lesbian um, rights, I suppose you'd say. And I say lesbian identity, but I don't mean that in a trivial way. Um, so I became aware of that. Um, I've always thought of myself as a feminist. And um, I grew up in the 80s, or the 70s and 80s. And so my first exposure to feminism was around the late 80s, early 90s. I suppose when the seeds were being sown for the um, controversy, controversies we now see, but um, I really 
thought I understood that sex, as in biological sex, was important um, in determining social outcomes. And uh, I didn't think that could possibly be in dispute. But then, in fact, we see that now it is. So I suppose when I first became aware of this as a controversy, I knew something was up. Um, I knew that uh, sex was important and we needed to be able to talk about it properly if we were feminists. So uh, when did you start sort of taking this on as as an academic? What, what was the first thing you wrote or said yeah. that kind of um, sparked the sparked your interest well, or other people's interest in what you were saying? <laughs> I mean, I've, I lay low for a while uh, just sort of watching the emerging controversy because in, in the UK um, in uh, 20... 18, I think it's hard to remember. Now. 2018, there was a public consultation. The government did one on gender recognition, what they called gender recognition reform. So in it's important to realize, I think, especially for um, US listeners looking on to the UK situation. In, in the UK, we have laws protecting gender reassignment and laws protecting sex, biological sex. Um, and the controversy is not about whether we should roll back protections for gender reassignment at all. The controversy emerged when um, trans activists started arguing that the laws protecting gender reassignment should be changed to um, protect something called gender identity, which was a kind of inner feeling. So the government was publicly consulting on that kind of change and a few others as well. And I was struck by the fact that academics were either being wildly enthusiastic about the changes or nothing. There seemed to be nobody making the case that um, there was a clash of rights involved as soon as you moved to talking about gender identity for women. Um, so I wrote this, I eventually plucked up the courage to write a blog post on Medium, which is like a free blog yes. platform I'm sure you know about it anyway I pressed send I was just it was something like why why are academic philosophers so quiet about um, gender recognition reform what explains this because it looks on the face of it like a big philosophical issue one that people would be keen to get their teeth into um, lots of conceptual distinctions and metaphysical <laughs> aspects to it as well as real life practical import so I wrote this thing and immediately got very strong reactions, both positive from some groups and very negative from others. So then I was sort of in. And the negative reaction was from academics primarily? Initially, yes. I mean, it took a while to sort of filter out into the wider public. But yes, almost immediately. In fact, within, I don't know, 30 seconds of pressing send, <laughs> I, got, I got very aggressive responses from some people that had followed me on Twitter up until that point and obviously oh, thought I that say, I was there. They're on the edge of their seat waiting for you. Yeah, to post I, something in, I, I think people just assume that, uh, you know, people think like you, don't they? And then suddenly I press this send button and they realize that they. Or they have, a, they have uh, probably, maybe they have notification alerts. Like if the word I gender pops up in something. Maybe. Sends it to them. Yes. Yeah. yeah so was it like the only people that were saying this kind of thing were sort of conservatives or, you know, what? what we would in America would think of people on the right, right wingers, like, no, was it just, no, no. Uh, I mean, saying the kind of thing that you were. No, sorry. no, I mean, exactly. So, I mean, in the UK, this is what's interesting, I think, about it is that there's a, a long tradition of, on the left of talking about sex-based rights. So um, 
the left is split on this issue, but the people that I was immediately inspired by were um, left-wing trade union activists organizing at grassroots level, um, or setting up organizations like one called the Women's Place UK, um, another one's called Fair Play for Women. Um, so these are traditional Labour voters, actually very involved, some of them in Labour politics. Uh, and that's where I'm coming from. I mean, I'm not, in, sorry, I, I want to clarify, I'm not, I haven't been massively involved in Labour politics in my life, but I've always voted on the left and thought of myself as on the left. So um, it's, it's a, it's an unfortunate polarizing um, perspective to think that as soon as you are against gender identity, uh, I mean, not in the sense of being against people with gendered identity disorders, but against it as a, uh, the political protection of gender identity, that you must be a conservative or on the right. It right. just doesn't go like that. Because when people have um, the consequences spelled out to them for women, then that affects people from all different perspectives, I think, equally. Yeah. I want to talk about the practical implications of this and, and sure. the different examples that you give. But before we do that, uh, you know, the, the book is a very thorough and rigorous endeavor in explaining the difference between sex and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for all the current discussion around gender, the way that word now permeates the discourse, including mm-hmm. in pop culture, a lot of people, some very smart people, don't understand the difference yeah. between sex and I, gender. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the, the shorthand uh, explanation I've always relied on is that sex refers to biological sex and gender refers to the performance of one biological sex or the other. What's missing in that explanation? Um, well, what's missing is ambiguity um, that has to be recognized. So gender actually is used in at least four different ways um, and they're not equivalent. So that you've just named one of them, but equally for some people, and actually historically, gender was a kind of polite word for sex. Right. So, um, so quite often, especially the older generation, use the word gender, or they say, you know, what gender should you have on your passport? Or because um, they didn't want to say sex. Yeah, so they didn't like want to say word. sex. So yeah. the, one of the fundamental problems with this is that the word sex, bio, biological sex, is the same word as the word for uh, the the act, um, right. and that has caused co- you know caused problems in itself because it makes people seek a different word for biological sex, right. and then they went for gender. Gender, I mean, you know, uh, in the nineteenth-century literature, gender was being used as an as a synonym for sex. So that's one use. <laughs> then there's the um, sort of seventies, eighties feminist, radical feminist, or just feminist use where sex is the social, uh, sorry, sorry, gender <laughs> is the social meaning of sex. Okay. So the stereotypes around sex, things like um, the norms, the expectations, what you might call masculinity or femininity, if you thought that those things were just socially produced and they can vary from culture to culture. So what counts as feminine for one culture can be quite different from what counts as feminine for a different culture or a different his- historical period. So that's gender. So when when feminists in the 70s used to say there's a difference between sex and gender, they meant there's a difference between biology and then how biology is socially interpreted uh, or kind of um, developed or performed, as you say. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And that's leaving aside any big, there's a sort of separate cultural war issue bubbling away, which I'm just leaving aside, which is whether, whether this stuff, gender, is actually social or is it somehow biological. So let's leave that aside. So yeah, let's we, assume it's a lot of it is social. Well, a lot of it is social, let's just say, and that's gender two, let's say. So we have gender one, now we've got gender two. Uh, okay. And then there's a third one, which is sort of, ref- I think, relatively um, limited to universities where people talk about gender as womanhood or manhood in a way that comes apart from biology. So um, I'm not, you know, I I can talk more about that one if you want, but I think actually that's not that common in the wider population. But what has become much more common recently is the idea of gender identity. And that's the the fourth um, meaning of gender. and gender identity is supposed to be a feeling or an inner sense or an inner perception you have of your sex that is n- nonetheless detached from the actual facts about your sex. So an inner feeling of being female, even if, in inverted commas, outwardly you are male or vice versa, or maybe even a feeling of being neither male nor female or being both and then in that case, you would be non-binary. Your, your gender identity would be non-binary. But it's psychological, not biological. And it's not necessarily to do with performance because they tell us gender identity can be completely unexpressed. You know, it can be secret and inner. And maybe you haven't come out about your gender identity yet, but it's still something you have. Or even and, unconscious. Can they, um, do they think it can be like in your to be honest, I'm not sure about that. I'm going to throw a wrench in things. Okay. You can say anything about gender identity pretty much because it's <laughs> okay. precisely invisible. Um, right. And people do, you know, so the, the, the claims about gender identity are getting more and more Byzantine and wild. <laughs> now, you know, you can have, there are thousands of gender identities and you can have pan gender and you can have demi fluid genders and all sorts, but that they're talking about identities and that's not the same as performance or expression. And it's not the same as the social meaning, because, of course, you can't identify into a social meaning. It's kind of imposed upon you. And it's not the same as biology. So there's, so when people talk about gender now, who knows? They could, two people could be arguing furiously about gender, and one of them could mean one thing, and one of them could mean another thing. So that's, that's part of our problem. Let's talk about why this matters for a little yeah. bit here. So yeah. um, I think that People think about, like in the U.S., we have all these bathroom bills, uh, so to speak, and it's a little confusing because it varies state to state, and it kind of like it, it's 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 hard to kind of enforce, and it's hard to figure out what they mean. And the fact is that there have been transgender people forever, and they've been using the bathrooms, and it really hasn't been an issue. Um, and so. I, I think people sometimes think, well, you know, who cares about that? Why are we obsessing about something like that? But then it, there's much more than that. There's, you know, women's spaces, women's sports. Uh, so, so talk about like why why you think this matters uh, on a on a practical level. Well, I think um, I think as the Americans say, the, I believe you say the rubber really hits the road when you move to gender identity, right? So. The diff- you're right, trans people have been using, um, so trans women have been using um, women's bathrooms unproblematically for years. And um, of course, that would be expected because transsexuals often are very, um, you know, they're, they're sort of, they, 
they they pass in inverted commas so they look exactly like um females so there's no reason for them not to use those spaces but um the problem emerges when the idea is that you're really a woman because of how you feel and this gives you a right to enter um any female space um now that's a problem because it interrupts the social norm i th- this is what i think anyway i think this severely interrupts the social norm um the social norm used to say that if some if a, if someone who was very male presenting came into your changing room or your shower or in a public space or um any other place where women are getting undressed or um asleep you know if there's hostels dormitories if someone male presenting came in you could say i'm sorry i think you're in the wrong place or you could call someone or you could tr- you know there's a there's a a kind of um presumption that they shouldn't be there because not because you think automatically that they have ill intent but you don't know and as a woman you are on average weaker and more vulnerable to sexual assault than males are and your male your main predator is males so it was a kind of social norm that protected women and when you move to explicitly building into policies public policies governing public space that anyone who feels like you know who has a, a, an inner feeling of being a woman is legitimately in that space effectively you've just made all those spaces unisex immediately because now anyone can walk in and the woman in there cannot say i'm sorry i think you might be in the wrong place now i know that from i know from long discussion of this that an immediate objection there is okay but what about um women who present in a masculine way you know they they shouldn't be challenged going into f- female spaces you know shouldn't we have policies that work for them and i think yes absolutely we should so ideally we'd have a range of different kinds of space for people to go where they felt comfortable and it wouldn't just be a choice of um one or the other but i i generally think that this the main problem in this area is sexual violence against women um it's anyone who works in the area of sexual violence knows that predators will seek opportunities to predate and i just don't see why um public bodies would go out of their way to undermine one of the only protections that women had in this area where in 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 context where they're getting undressed or um asleep uh if if they're you know in a hostel or a dormitory um or something like that and then there's also the problem of prisons which is a huge extra um complication to this issue and do we have statistics as to how prevalent these sorts of crimes are like, well, because we, i think it's easy for people to say well how yeah. often does this really happen well, well in britain we don't but i can tell you why we don't um because <laughs> we also have in in britain um policies which say that when a a person with a a male with a female gender identity commits a crime they are it's recorded as female crime so you know this is in in the uk oh, wow. we have these policies everywhere in almost every area of public life which is part of the reason that i felt like i have to come out and start arguing about this because so we really don't know what the problem is we do know though that sexual assault is underreported anyway we do know that there would be massive stigma attached to reporting this potentially in some subcultures <laughs> um we also know that there are plenty of examples of peeping toms 
we so remember we're not just talking about sexual assault before we're talking about voyeurism flash what we i would call flashing i don't know what you call that exposure yeah, no, maybe we, yeah yes, flashing. with the rain with the raincoat um, when the yes. raincoat, yeah, when with a raincoat, or maybe in the in the <laughs> yeah. in the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, there's also yeah. camera camera crimes increasingly because of mobile phone technology. There's upskirting. <laughs> there's a whole range of issues, and you've got to remember that there is, is in no sense the claim that trans women are particularly a dangerous population. I have no evidence for that at all. But what I what there is no evidence for is that they are a less dangerous population than the male population, generally speaking. And that's what we'd be looking for. And I don't know of any evidence that shows that. So have you been uh, tarred as a, as a transphobe? It's very difficult to talk about this stuff with any degree of nuance. Like how, uh, yes. how have you sort of navigated this, this territory as you speak out about this? Well, um, yes, I'm absolutely targeted as a, tarred as a transphobe. Um, I am not a transphobe and I just, think people are going to have to take my word for that, but I have very good relationships with trans people. I have some trans comrades who agree with me on these issues and who um, stand beside me to argue about them. And um, I also meet trans people in my professional life relatively often. So although I am not a transphobe, um, it is frequently said of me I am because it is now, I mean, it's a genius move in a way on behalf of campaigning groups, they have equated any criticism of the idea that gender identity is more important than biological sex with transphobia. Yeah. So it doesn't. it's not really surprising that I then come out as a transphobe on that analysis, because I am definitely criticizing the idea that an inner feeling is more important than a material fact. Yeah, yeah. So with respect to the inner feeling, uh, mm-hmm. you, you uh, distill the current iteration of gender identity theory down to eight moments. I thought this was really interesting the way you do this. Um, and you beginning with Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex in 1949 mm-hmm. and ending with the explosion of identities we've seen like literally in the last two years, maybe the last year even. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like changing on, all the time. very much on the move. Um, yeah. So before we go down the list, um, I was particularly interested in what you identify as the second moment. And that was uh, involving John Money and mm-hmm. Robert uh, Stoller. John Money was mm-hmm. a, um, a a child psychologist from New Zealand, uh, and uh, he. I, I was really surprised that it was him who introduced this concept of gender identity. I was, you know, he perpetuated what has to be the most egregious violations of the Hippocratic Oath in modern medical history. But but tell tell us who he is and uh, what he was trying to get across. Well, yes. I mean, he's um, he worked with um, what would then be called intersex children and adults, um, and he and now I, uh, the, the the terminology I use in the book is people with differences of sexual development. Sometimes it's disorders of sexual development. I think that terminology is in flux also. But let's say people with DSDs. So that is people who um, have variations. Uh, in their sexual organs or in their um, hormonal ranges due to underlying disorders. Um, so he worked with children that way and he um, and he and other people like Robert Stollett, but the, this terminology emerged 
this is in the, in the 60s, of um, something which they would call a gender role, which was the outward presentation of, I guess, femininity or masculinity. Um, they didn't really, as far as I can see, they didn't labor its social aspect very much. They weren't really that interested in where it came from, but they would say, you know, there's a way of behaving that's like behaving like a woman, or there's a way of behaving that's behaving like a man, and that's your gender role. And then um, gender identity is the kind of inner, they thought was the inner um, aspect of the outward role. So thinking of yourself as a woman, relating to yourself as a woman, um, whatever that really means. And, and the concept got purchased in talking about um, children with particular DSDs, for instance, somebody with um, complete androgen insensitivity syndrome is genetically male. They've got XY chromosomes, but they um, have their outer body, as it were, is um, female-like. So they have breasts. Sometimes they, ha they have vulva. Um, so their outer uh, external genitalia is female-like, but they also have undescended testicles. They would be assigned um, female at birth as the... Well, that's, a, they, that's an example where the, the language of assignation um, makes more sense. Right. But yeah, they, they would be um, often this... I, think, I believe that this um, condition doesn't emerge sometimes till uh, puberty because at that point they don't have periods. But so it's, it definitely could go undetected. And so that would be someone... In, in money's way of looking at it, somebody who had that, I suppose there's two different cases, one where they knew they had it and one where they didn't. But if they didn't, they would have a kind of gender role that was feminine, and then they ha would have a female gender identity. Um, now, that kind of conceptual way of, I don't know what you, this conceptual framework then started to be used for people who didn't have DSDs, you know, who are chromosomally standard issue as it were and those bodies are standard issue male or female but who felt very strongly that they were somehow in the wrong body and that would be people with gender what we'd say gendered who, who had gender dysphoria um but that's they're not people who have differences of sexual development okay but money is associated with this infamous case of of david right david mm. reimer who was it was an infant, male infant, who had a botched circumcision and yeah. did not have a penis. And it was, correct me if I'm not remembering this right, but it was Money who said, oh, well, you know, that's we'll just raise him as a girl. This is um, this is the solution to this. Am I, is that a reductive yeah, version I of the story? I believe so. I mean, I'm not a historian, so I, I uh, you know, I don't want to say anything too um, emphatic about that. that story but that's the story i i have read um that he um encouraged the parents to to treat the boy as a girl and to name give him a different give him a different name and then um after, later on in life this um the young adult um david david re, i don't know what to say reverted but basically renounced the female um gender role that had been 
imposed well, he kind of him. found out. I mean, I'm not even sure that he, he was told about it as a, a child. Right. I mean, and it was so, but I mean, I don't know, maybe you don't know the details, but was money his physician somehow? Or I don't know I how don't he know came, came on, well. onto the scene. But it was, I mean, it's remarkable because it was decided, and this was in the 60s, that, you know, oh, okay, no problem. Just r- raise him as a girl. And I don't know if he was given, hor- I-, I assume he was given hormones. I'm pretty sure. I assume so yeah. too. So, I mean, I think, I what I think is absolutely fascinating about that case is the way that we, so your reaction there was very strongly disapproving of it. And mine is too. <laughs> okay. But then I do think we need to ask then, what are we doing now <laughs> with, where um, in the case of some parents who are saying things like my three-year-old has a a, a non-aligned gender identity. My three-year-old assigned male at birth is really a girl. I mean, I just don't know what the difference is. Or, or, I mean, especially if you're sending that child on a route that will end up with um, lifelong drug ingestion and irreversible changes to their body. So um, that's a, an interesting parallel to explore, I think. For yeah, ethicists. well, and, and in this case, I think the child was, you know, they were raising raising the child as a girl, but he was still like peeing, standing up. Like he had absolutely, he had all these mm. sort of, you know, stereotypically male instincts behaviorally and, and otherwise. Um, and I mean, he ended up committing suicide. I, I think he, I think he did marry eventually, um, but it was, it's just a, it's a horrific story. It's a tragic story. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sure I'm not, I don't know if it quite, uh, tracks with this now phenomenon we have with these small children saying that they are a different sex. I mean, the, the, the three-year-old saying that, that he's a different sex is different than the 15 year old, uh, who is announcing a new identity in sort of a sudden way. I mean, this phenomenon of rapid onset um, gender dysphoria. I mean, maybe perhaps you... I'm not disagree. sure it's that different. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, the three-year-old seems like... He, but the three-year-old is, less- not, is not on social media, um, you know, no, getting the, the idea that this is... is- learning- the three-year-old, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but the three-year-old is, is learning about the world. So the three-year-old's concepts are not yet secure. Um, they are learning what uh, boys and girls are. They can easily get that wrong. Um, there's absolutely no reason to think that they know what they're talking about. I mean, children identify as all sorts of things throughout a normal, healthy development, and they should be allowed to let they should be allowed to get on with it. But that's not what we're seeing. We're not just seeing sort of a relaxed, um, healthy tolerance for children's flights of imagination. We're seeing parents taking certain um, claims that children, young, very young children, are making absolutely literally. And then telling everyone else that they're true, tell, reinforcing the child's yeah. belief that they're true, and not ex- leaving any other um, narratives open to that child, and that, and parents and sorry and teachers are going along with it too. So that's completely different to a kind of healthy tolerance for yes. whatever your child yeah. come up with that's, today. Uh, that's a that's a social phenomenon that I want to talk with you about in, yeah. in a little bit here. But just I I think people are still. I want to make sure people understand this as much as as possible. Sure. Um, the third moment you talk about um, is is Anne Fausto Sterling, uh, the the researcher, talking about biological sex continuum, and this folds into the the intersex question mm-hmm. here. I remember mm-hmm. seeing her speak at a university 
a couple of years ago. And if I'm remembering correctly, she was making the argument that, well, because um, because these sorts of Ab, I don't know abnormalities or just variants uh, are so, variations are so common, then this really mm. isn't a big deal. I mean, a lot of people are intersex, and you know, there's mm. some sort of like improbably high, uh, you know, like two percent of the population 1. is one point yeah. seven, right? Is 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 actually say. technically intersex. So what's the big deal? And I remember yeah. she was speaking to like primarily undergraduates at a at a big public university here and they were kind of like mesmerized and like oh well yeah. okay and, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now that you mentioned it so uh what it, it just seemed to me really um uh just she was she was leaving out a lot of a lot of uh, details so oh, yeah. yes i mean 1.7 percent of the population is not intersex if we're going to retain any meaning for that term um, i mean 1.7% of the population doesn't even, I would say, have um, significant variation. So what that what that includes, that number that she uses and others now use as well, is um, a condition called um, non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Hyperplasia, I think I pronounced that rightly. Um, so that's a condition that come, emerges in for girls, and I, I say girls advisedly, like females in, um, I mean, I'm not a medic, so I'm going <laughs> to have to take the advisory that, you know, medics can get in and disagree with me. But it, I believe it comes on late in puberty and, or at least manifest there, and is compatible with carrying a baby to term. So there's no big variation here um, at all. And that takes a huge chunk of that 1.7% away. What, so the true, the sort of the conditions that we're most likely to think of as intersex, like genuinely intersex, are ones is where there's ambiguity, and the doctor really has to do some tests to work out whether we've got female or male, or that there's, you know, really quite pronounced variation in the body produced. So it, it for instance, in the one I mentioned earlier, um, androgen sensitive intense sensitivity syndrome, where. Um, under you know male bodies present in a female way and then there is there's classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia where the female body is virilized to produce genitalia that can look very like a penis and scrotum so those are those are um different to having um something that's compatible with carrying a baby to term and and your body um your, your genitalia are absolutely normal. Okay, so that's what we would be, what you just described would be what we would think of as a hermaphrodite, what we have historically well, defined as such? I don't, historically perhaps, yes. I mean, I don't think there is such a thing as a hermaphrodite. There are, I think, I think what this, what if treated properly, the issue of people with DSDs like this does pose questions, which Fausto Sterling is asking about how to categorize them in a way that um, meets their interests, because they have interests. Obviously, um, they are often, it's a traumatic uh, condition to have, and um, it's difficult for their self-perceptions, and often they are subject to invasive surgeries that are non-consensual or that are in traumatic in other ways. So, I'm not underestimating in any way the challenges faced by people with DSDs, um, especially ones which have some degree of ambiguous sexual ambiguity about them. Um, 
but uh, the thing is that they're very, very small in number. And um, the tr the, this kind of the one I'm kind of talking about, there's other kinds too, where you've got some cells in your body which express um, XX and some cells which express XY, for instance. So, or you, there's there's ovotesticular disorder where you've got some ovarian material in your body and some testicular material in your body so these are really complicated cases you know and I'm not a, a, a physician um so I wouldn't start to talk about how best to treat them but to, to make those very small number of cases somehow central to our discussion of gender identity when you know 99.9 percent .9 of trans people are chromosomally standard hormonally standard um you know and have um morphology that's standard for their sex is a uh, kind of i just think it's inappropriate and it's also it's instrumentalizing people with dsds for political purposes which i also object to right although it does come up uh in arguments for instance about competitive sports you have figures like yeah. master semenya who's the yeah. the runner uh i can't remember which african country she, she is from she's but south she, africa, she's south africa so she was competing as a woman always uh -huh. she she identified as a woman uh but it was so so extraordinary as as a runner and beating all the runners and i guess i don't know if she was it was an olympic she couldn't she was denied uh the ability to compete because they actually ended up sort of testing her, you know, doing blood work mm -hmm. and giving her all sorts mm -hmm. of tests. And she was really sort of genuinely intersex. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, she's, we don't, I don't think it's officially known what variation she has, but, um, but look, that's a huge ethical issue, but it's a different ethical issue because it involves something that happened to her from birth onwards. Um, and, it's and remember that what I've been talking up about up until now, and what I talk about for most of the book, is a feeling. It's, it's nothing. Yeah. It's not even the administration artificially of hormones. It's not the artificial suppression of testosterone. It's not um, removing testicular material through surgery. It's a feeling. So um, I I think there's a huge temptation, or is it a strategy on behalf of political groups? you know, in favor of trans activism to smush all these things together, intersex people, Casa Semenier, um, you know, whatever works to right. confuse people to say there's just all this confusion and ambiguity here. So maybe we should just give them all a free pass, you know, but it, they're not all the same. These cases are not all the same. And it's doing a disservice to people to, like, like Casa Semenier. And I'm not underestimating the thorny issues there, but they are different issues to the issues of, um, uh, a trans-identified athlete in Connecticut who, you know, is absolutely standard male issue, but says, I've got a female gender identity. I'm now going to compete on the women's team. That's just a completely different issue. Okay. Speaking of confusion, Judith mm -hmm. Butler. Let's talk about Judith <laughs> Butler. <laughs> she's, she's your fourth moment. So yeah, I think so you, you and I are around the same age. So we were, when we were sort of coming up, uh, Judith Butler was the, uh, the, the North star for a lot of people. Yep. Um, you, you have, uh, the way you write about her, um, is uh, quite quite delightful. Uh, you have a line <laughs> here. You say Butler's worldview is hugely seductive for those of a certain mindset. Butler is the Harry Potter of philosophy 
transforming boring old truisms about the material world into something alchemical, shifting, and sexily impermanent. Okay, so uh, tell us who she is and why why she matters so much to certain right. set of people. Well, well, she's a professor of comparative literature at Berkeley. I always mispronounce that. Is it Berkeley? Berkeley. Yeah, she's at UC yes. Berkeley these days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think she is. I don't know uh, for sure. I haven't checked. People move around, but she she's been there for a while. She was there for a while, and she is. Um, she wrote a book in 1990 called Gender Trouble. And then she wrote another one called Bodies That Matter, and she's written many, many since. But those two books um, say that they argue, I mean, in some sense of argue, uh, that um, sex is a social construction. Biology itself, and in particular biological sex, is entirely socially constructed. There is no material reality underpinning it that we can really think about in any coherent sense. So all there is, is discursive, what she would call discursive kind of constructions um, of maleness and femaleness, masculinity, femininity. Um, And on her view, gender, the way she uses it, I mean, this is before the idea of gender identity, right? So she yeah, no, she was way ahead of her gender. time. I mean, this was the, yeah, um, it was 1990, yeah. 1990, but gender is a performance, and that's uh, sort of calcified over time through multiple instantiations, but like masculinity. So really, what you thought of, what you might have thought of as masculinity and femininity as kind of social stuff um, underpinned by sex, she's kind of pulled off this trick where she's like, no, even the underpinning is social. There's just nothing that isn't social. And of course, if it's social, then it's contingent. It could be changed. It can vary from culture to culture. Um, so she's opened up a conceptual space for people to say things like, you know, um, the notion of biological sex is a white supremacist colonialist construction and things like this. Which, you know, if you've got any kind of allegiance to a scientific worldview um, or one that's con- sort of amenable to the findings of science those sorts of statements can boggle your mind you just think look that sexual dimorphism is is something that's found in many species not just human ones and how could it have been invented well seahorses seahorses right aren't seahorses right, uh, right, yeah. uh not not dimorphic so there you can always well, play yeah. the seahorse you card you can always talk about clownfish and seahorses right. but again it's a bit like you know it, again, it's the rhetorical move of just pushing all these things together, and with enough smoke and mirrors, you will confuse everybody. And actually, it seems to work. So, <laughs> fair play. So, I mean, what would somebody, what would Judith Butler do with a story like poor David Reimer, who John Money's patient? I mean, he he was raised as a girl, but he was still exhibiting all sorts of behaviors and instincts that were masculine. One thing you, I mean, I don't. One thing you can do is blame the context constantly and say that so you can still do that now you can pull that trick now you can say that whatever the source of unhappiness it's people's responses to the person that are somehow the problem rather than anything else so I, I don't know I just don't know what she'd say is a short answer yeah. but or that she the probably parents, has written about it I yeah. mean I haven't tracked everything she's written yeah um 
or that the parents somehow knew. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think I I haven't, I mentioned that case in passing in my book because uh, you're right, it raises a a lot of interesting um, issues for contemporary times. But I, you know, it's a, it's a really quite strange and relatively unique case. And I think I'm more interested in thinking about kind of the the widespread, the the structural, the sort of if that decision had been if that sort of decision had been built into policy, <laughs> you know, then we would have um, God knows where we'd be. But arguably, we that's the sort of thing that is now being built into policy, and that's what really really worries me. Right. So so to that end, you the fifth moment is Julia Serrano says identity is the main thing that makes you a man or a woman. So let's just talk about that briefly in relation to the sixth moment, which is the Yogi Akarta principles. That wasn't something mm-hmm. I was familiar with. So that is something that is recommending recognition of gender as a human right. So so talk about uh, those those ideas. Sure. Well, I mean, Serrano wrote this book, um, Whipping Girl. Um, Serrano's a trans woman and a biologist, I believe. So... Um, that comes with a certain amount of authority on both counts. And I think that book was pretty influential amongst thinking sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, thinking readers, but people who like to keep up with what's going on in culturally and has a gloss of science about it. So, you know, um, it was on the cusp of the the social wave that we're now really seeing, I think. Um and it in it she argues about she argues that well she introduces the no, notion of cis I don't know if she really came up with it but certainly oh, yeah I think who she did come up with it. that who who came up with cis oh, I don't know you keep asking me all these sorry I'm a philosopher. okay sorry sorry you could just <laughs> make something you. up you're a philosopher no, just, no, just make yeah, something exactly. up that's what I do <laughs> but now I'm a bit worried so no no um I. I am not a historian, but I did get all that checked out with a historian before I published it. But yeah, I don't know who came up with this. I think what I would really like to see is some proper histories of all this stuff that aren't intense. Well, I think it's telling. I think it's telling that you don't know the answer because I and, yeah. and that I don't know the answer because I'm not a philosopher, but I do. I am interested in well, this I stuff. Think, and no, yeah. if I don't know and you don't know, uh, I bet a lot <laughs> well, of people don't know. I think Serrano popularized the idea of cis okay. um, or cissexual. And this is the idea that, um, so she has this argument that trans is just an adjective that you attach to woman or man, a bit like you might attach Asian or Catholic, you know, so it's not, it's just a kind, trans women are a kind of woman. And the um, the contrast class is cis women. So there's trans women and there's cis women, and together they comprise the class of women. Um, now, that's a surprising move if, um, like me, you'd always assumed that trans wasn't an adjective that you attached to women. Trans women was a different kind of thing to women. Um, and that is what I used to assume and is what I still assume. So um that's that's anathema to say in itself, but that is what I think. I think um, that there's women and then there's trans women, and those are different things. But um, the uh, the notion of cis really kind of helped normalise the idea. I think that there's just two kinds of women: there's trans and there's cis. And the the problem with that is if trans women are now identified in terms of, sorry, characterised it as such in terms of identity, 
And then you put that into public policy. So trans women are women, trans women is anyone who feels like a woman, and you put that into policy, then you get all the problems that we were just talking about, or many of the problems we talked about. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just to quickly finish this list, though, then the invention sure, of the concept sorry. of turf. No, 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 not at all. I keep I keep stopping you and asking you unanswerable <laughs> questions. So number seven is the, the invention of the concept of a turf. A turf is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Radical um, feminist. I'm sure you've been called that. Uh, I've, I've yeah. probably been called it. If I had my if I had my Twitter notifications set differently, I would probably see more, Don't do more that. of that. I would that. advise against no, no. it. Yes. Um, but it, you know, it's a horrible, um, it's a, it's a real slur. Uh, it is, it's considered as such. So when, when did that, that, that arose? And then the last item on the list is the, the explosion of identities, which is what we've seen, um, in the last, in the last sure. couple of years. So this, all, all of these eight moments, really, it's, I think it's a, it's a useful timeline. Um, and it represents the sort of whole gestalt here. Um, but yeah, what do you, how important is the, uh, is the rise of this turf idea? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a short way of saying something that's in itself, I think, misleading. Because of course, if you're going to say that radical feminists or anyone who thinks um, that trans women and women are two different kinds of thing are exclusionary, then you've already kind of loaded the die against that view. Um, so in itself, I think, you know, I'm not trans exclusionary in any way, you know, I, any, what well, any meaningful no. way, I, I absolutely think trans people have the right to all, every um, protection in terms of employment and in terms of healthcare and in terms of freedom from harassment and violence and so on. So to call me trans exclusionary you know, build that into a definition of what I am, I think is prejudicial. But then it gets shortened to tough. And then it just becomes really easy to say, you know, to shout obscenities at me, or to uh, and add turf or um, it's a really ugly sound. And it and on the internet, on Twitter, if you Google the word turf, you will see its conjunction with all sorts of hideous threats. Well, and pe people who are really do actual harm and violence to, to trans people, uh, right? I mean, well, the, amongst the TERFs, well, I mean, I don't think so. The most, well, the we, people no, I mean, do, we get, we get lumped into that idea, oh, yes, right? Yes. We're an yeah, an I mean, enemy of trans that, people. The people that tend to harm trans people, when you look at like um, the circumstances of, you know, lamentable trans crimes is usually um, males, it's it's not feminists sitting around reading, uh, you know, radical feminist texts and then um, committing heinous violence. That's not how it goes. So it's 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 really uh, yes, it's an absolute sort of rhetorical move to to kind of get women to be quiet, really, by calling us names and kind of implying that we must be evil bigots for having views that don't go along with what trans activism wants us to think. We're going to pause here for a brief message. Hi there. My name's Paul Shirley. I'm a former professional basketball player turned writer and also the founder of a thing called The Process. I'm honored to have a few seconds within Megan's podcast to tell you what we do at The Process. If you're anything like most people, you're scattered, overstimulated, and frustrated by your inability to concentrate for long periods of time. 
texts, emails, social media, and somehow you're expected to make progress at your job and on your passion projects. It's a lot. This is where the process comes in. I believe that everything worth doing requires a process to do it, a set of habits and routines that allow you to access sustained periods of deep work. Through virtual co-working and productivity coaching, that's what we do at the process. We help people like you learn to be productive, not busy. And here's the best part. You won't be doing this alone. Inside our platform, you'll meet people from all over the world, people who are dealing with the same frustrations you are, and people who want the same things you do, structure, accountability, community, and most of all, progress on the projects most important to you. We'd love to have you. To learn more, come see us at createyourprocess.com. So your book is called Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism. And I was struck by the word reality in the subtitle because you, before you got involved in this, you wrote a lot about fiction and imagination. I, I wonder, what is the, um, is there a sort of overlap um, between between this interest and some of your, um, some of your original academic pursuits? There is. Um, I mean, I think it's uh, definitely part of the background that led me to this. I mean, so I spent a lot of my professional life thinking about fiction, how it works, what mental states it involves, both for, um, say, you know, readers or people who are at a play and who are watching people move around on stage and imagining that they're somewhere else entirely. Um, also for actors themselves and what mental states they're having as they act. Um, so there's also fictions are a huge part of human life. Um, when you think about how long we spend watching Netflix dramas or going to the movies or reading novels. Um, and I think it's fascinating. So now what the connection is, um, this is my view, is that in fact, um, when we say trans women are women, we are immersing ourselves, both trans people and um, other people, in a benign, what we take to be a benign fiction. Now, I, I know that may sound difficult to hear for some people, but it is what I think. And actually, I think the reason we find it difficult to hear is because it's very difficult when you're immersed in a fiction to kind of reflect on the fact it's a fiction. It kind of breaks the fourth wall, as it were, um, just for the same sort of reason as when we're at the theatre, we don't want people's mobile phones to go off. You know, we just want to be immersed in this fiction. And as I talk about it, there's a whole chapter in the book about the role of fiction and how it can be a very positive force in people's lives. So I'm in no way saying it's something we shouldn't do. Um, in interpersonal contexts, it can be useful, um, and we do it in all sorts of different ways. And it's not the same as deceiving people or lying to them, or you know. So I make those distinctions very carefully and try to. However, um, there are also circumstances where being immersed in a fiction can be detrimental um, to yourself or to those around you. And it, the situation I'm particularly worried about is where institutions compel us to immerse ourselves in particular fictions. And I think those are um, really quite worrying because at that point, people stop understanding it's a fiction and start taking it literally. And that can have all sorts of knock-on effects, say for children's understanding of what's going on or um, public understanding generally. So I try and detail that. So I think in a way that's partly what we're seeing with children 
um, and the rapid rise of gender identity disorders, quite often it involves children who don't really understand what biology is and what its consequences are and maybe what their bodies are doing or um, they may feel very emotionally negative towards their bodies. Um, and then a culture is now offering them a narrative saying, you know, maybe you're a boy, maybe you're really a boy, you know, you may think you're a girl, but actually maybe you're really a boy. And um, they're taking that literally. And those around them are taking that literally. And I think, so we need to talk about how this this fiction may have got out of control <laughs> and what we can do about it. Yeah. Why do you think it is? I mean, I don't want to take you out of your area of, of inquiry, but do you have um, theories as to why this is happening now? Why are we suddenly seeing like a 4,000% increase? I think I did, I read that number somewhere. It might've come out sure. of the UK of um, 5,000 in the UK. Uh, 5,000 in the UK. In okay. girls. Um, in girls yeah. They don't, well, there actually aren't numbers. I think the UK is the only, the, the only statistics I've seen with real hard numbers have come out of the, the UK. It's very hard to, to, to track this, but you know, we're seeing this in, increase and there's all kinds of people running around journalists and, uh, you know, various kinds of cultural observers making, you know, sometimes, sometimes, um, insightful, other times glib, uh, uh, assertions about why this is. Um, what are your theories? Um, well, I don't have, I don't think there's a simple explanation. So I think it's going to be multifactorial in the sense of having lots of different um, causes uh, coming together at one time. But one obvious uh, culprit is the internet. <laughs> so um, social media has allowed um, children to obviously communicate with each other and to be in much more influenced than they would otherwise have been by social trends because it's you know the clue is in the name social media and we are very sociable animals <laughs> as humans we tend to just you know adopt fashions or trends or ingest norms <laughs> um at the drop of a hat so um there is a correlation i believe between sites like tumblr in the um 2000s and 2010s um, and the rise of uh, trans identified children and teens um, and I'm not the first person to say that by any means but also no, I think if you trace um, parallel discussions about the rise of self-harm in girls um, so I've the name has gone out of my head but that Netflix documentary that's on at the moment about the influence of social media Oh, the social dilemma. Yes. So there's a there's a graphic in the middle of that that connects um, the rise in self harm with the rise of smartphone phones in teenage girls, and also I believe suicide. Although I'd have to go back and look, and it's really stark. So you know, I think girls are feeling worse and worse about themselves. This is a message that comes out of Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, as well. Girls are feeling worse and worse about themselves by being exposed constantly to objectifying images or images that show them what supposed perfection bodily and facially looks like for them. And then they are looking for narratives to express their distress. And that might be self-harm, it might be anorexia, or it might be um, breastbinding and saying you're a boy. So um, we've got to look th at that possibility properly. And the trouble is it's become so politicized that as soon as someone suggests that, then 
trans activists try and shut it down. And I think that's really harmful for girls. You know, I'm, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about how there seems to be this connection between anime and um, people who, young people who are identifying as uh, transgender. Have you heard about this? Um, well, I've witnessed like, it in the sense there's that a lot I can of, see a lot of avatars. The avatars, yeah. But there is, so I had um, uh, a therapist on on the show, um, one, one of the earliest episodes, actually, a, a therapist named Sasha Ayad, who, oh, yeah. who works with, um, uh, with, with young people announcing transgender identities. And she talked about how... Um, there just tends to be a lot of a lot of the kids. They seem to be interested in in anime, and there and there's also um, a, a crossover with autism spectrum, and that somehow the the aesthetic of anime, the very exaggerated facial expressions, the eyes that you know, the large eyes, for instance, that this was somehow um, a, a comfort or an attraction to people who are on the spectrum. I mean, these are huge generalities, obviously, but this is just sure. sort of one way of thinking about this maybe that, you know, people who have a hard time reading social cues might be um, inclined to to appreciate this kind of aesthetic. But now I'm also thinking like you're talking about this sort of world, this kind of imaginative world and the way that that fiction kind mm. of plays out. I'm just mm. totally thinking off the top of my head right now. So this might not make any sense, but like, the, like what, I wonder if there's a relationship between this kind of, you know, surrealistic, like almost science, like, you know, fantasy fiction kind of genre type of, um, type of sensibility and how that might factor into any of this. I don't know. Just I mean, whatever. I think what, what I would be willing to say is that um, kids and adults are spending more and more time and this was before the pandemic, you know, at home, they are actually physically disconnected from one another, but on computers, um, sort of virtually connected, inverted commas, to each other. But of course, in the virtual world, you can put forward any, you can curate, as the, as the saying goes, your mm-hmm. presentation, you can tell a, new, a totally new narrative about yourself that no one really can undermine because they can't see you in real time, they can't track your bodily and facial movements, They you know, they can't hear your tone of voice or tell whether you're anxious or confident or cocky. You know, they just, it's its very um, flattening, the internet. It kind of makes everybody sound a bit the same and everybody sounds quite confident and um, so on. So, and or, you know, even when they're talking about their own anxieties, they still, there's still a kind of confidence about it that it wouldn't be saying it necessarily out loud to a big crowd, but they right. can say it on the internet. So you can really curate your own story and um, there's a lot of affirmation from strangers very often, so you can become addicted to that. So I think it really allows you to get precisely immersed in a fiction about yourself if you go that way. Your point about autism is very well taken. So um, several studies um, and anecdotal evidence coming out of gender identity clinics in the UK suggest that a quite a high proportion of trans-identified teens and children have autistic spectrum disorder. Um, or on the autistic spectrum disorder so and that is important because they may well um, struggle with um, facial recognition they may well struggle with conceptual categorization you know it might be a bit take a bit longer for kids um, with some varieties of ASD so um, those are those things are important when you're assessing 
what they're saying about themselves. It's they're building a complex net. We're all building complex networks of understanding about the world around us. And um, sometimes things can go awry in that in those stories that aren't immediately obvious. Um, so I think we can't just or we shouldn't ever just take um, absolutely take people's stories about themselves at face value when the consequences are things like lifelong drugs. <laughs> you know, of course, for most everyday situations, if somebody says, I'm this or I'm that, you know, fine, whatever. <laughs> if you feel like that, that's great. But we you've got to remember the context. We're talking about many in many cases being put on a path that will end up with irreversible changes to sexual organs, to sexual function, maybe to bone density, to growth. You know, there's lots and lots of big changes that will come if you are on a path to um to um trans medicine. So um I just think in those contexts, the, the discussion becomes a whole lot more important. Well, and part of the fiction, as you might put it, is that if parents don't go along with this, the child will commit suicide. <sighs> yes. And that's just not true. Um, as a generalization, it's entirely politicized um, and really shamefully politicized um, by. So in the UK, we have organizations, there's one called Mermaids that claims to speak on behalf of trans-identified children, but constantly weaponizes the threat, as it were, of suicide in order to lobby for easier access to puberty blockers or lowering of the age at which you can get a gender recognition certificate. Um, and, it, and the evidence is just not there. In fact, the National Health Service Gender Identity Clinic has points out on its website that um, incidents of suicide amongst its patients is very low, but that you just would never get that impression from looking at the lobbyists' propaganda. No. And like, in terms of the parents and their reactions, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm I'm struck often. I mean, I see this in people I know. I, I, I know so many people who are parents and their kids have come to them and said, you know, I'm, I'm transgender. This, this, you know, I, like at least five or six fairly good friends of mine, like, you know, and it comes and goes, maybe it doesn't last that long. Maybe it goes on for a period of years. There's such pressure that these parents feel to go along with it for fear that not doing so will, will cause real harm. But I mean, in some cases, and I'm not talking about anyone I know specifically, but just, I see it on social media. I just see it like, it's almost like the parents become part of the story. It's almost like they're, it, they are excited about it. I mean, they want, look, they want their child to thrive. Nobody, they, they have the best interests of their, of their kids at heart. Let's be clear about that. But there is something kind of strange uh, happening with this sort of whole, the, the celebratory aspect of it. I don't, what do you make of that? And I don't mean, I, I, I hesitate to, this sounds like I'm being disparaging. I'm not, I, this is no. really um, a dispassionate just, observation. Sure. I think it's, um, I know what you mean for certain parents, but I do think it's incredibly difficult um, to to stand against a social deluge, as it were, especially in certain subcultures. So I'm sure there are some subcultures in the States, there are in the UK, where this is not a common, trans-identified children is not a common phenomenon. And then there's other subcultures, like academic subcultures, maybe university campuses, whatever, where it's very 
common because it partly depends on things like class. <laughs> yeah, well, these are these are the uh, the, the liberal, yes, yeah, the, the Chardonnay drinking, uh, yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. Um, and so that in itself should tell you something about its social origins. But um, yeah. but there's always been children who identify strongly with the opposite sex, you know, I mean, especially um, if you, once you meet loads of lesbians, as I'm sure you know, loads and loads of lesbians have histories of, of saying they were boys as children. And, right. um, you know, I've got a friend, actually, she's not a lesbian, but she used to like want to pee, well, she used to pee standing up, she used to try, you know, and she absolutely didn't want to sit down. Wow. <laughs> and I've got several close friends who were called boys names by their you know by choice their parents went along with it but their parents didn't tell them they were boys you know they just said yeah if you want to be called George right you're George um yeah if you want to wear that you can wear that you know so they let them go through what they were going through but that's different I think to what's happening now because precisely of the surrounding kind of structures through educational context through academic context which are all saying no if they feel like if they feel they're a boy they really are a boy and that's completely different so standing up against that is hard I think nonetheless I think you should <laughs> you should really try um I think you yeah. should try and create a space for your child to be who they want to be in a kind of benign sense rather than a, a very loaded sense just let them go through experimentation without consequences well also and just broadening the definition of maleness or femaleness i mean i'm sure some of my listeners are rolling their eyes right now because i tend to bring this up a lot but you know i like i i, I, I we're around the same age i grew up in the 70s and the 80s and at that time if you were a girl there were a lot of ways you could be. You could be, you know, they call this tomboys. Like you could be into sports. You could be like a, a, a girly girl. There were a lot of ways of presenting. In fact, there was much more freedom uh, in female presentation than in male presentation in, yeah, in a lot of true. ways. And I think something did change um, maybe in the starting in the in the 90s or the early aughts we had this kind of hyper feminization in the culture there was the disney princess phenomenon and then this kind of the you know online pornography came around and there was this kind of raunch culture so i do think that it's it's harder to be a girl yes. oh, now yeah. than it than it used to be sorry oh, it's Roger. pretty simple i couldn't agree more i mean i think it's horrific to be honest what girls face as soon as they reach puberty in terms of um, social media and the pressure, extra pressures upon them. And as you just mentioned, porn, which is another thing, another elephant in the room that really needs to be thought about in conjunction with women's experience. If you're constantly confronted with images of women being brutalized um, sexually or even just objectified generally, you know, kind of MTV style objectification. Yeah, and, and impossible uh, standards. I mean, you know, Instagram standards. filters on everything. We impossible didn't have standards, that. But also, you know, highly sexualized culture where things like choking and spitting are, you know, becoming more and more normalized as part of the sex act. I, you know, I don't blame people for thinking this is not for me. I need to get out of this. I need to press an escape button. I absolutely don't blame anyone for this. It's not the point. The point is to look at the structural 
background to it and how these things are interacting to produce the phenomenon we see. So, yeah. What was your relationship to femaleness growing up? Did you, did you ever question your, your, your gender? Um, well, not in those terms. Um, and I certainly wasn't a tomboy physically, like anyone who knew me then would laugh at the idea that I was a tomboy physically because I was absolutely rubbish at sports. But um, I definitely know what it is to feel uncomfortable with my female body. Absolutely know that. And I think coming out, realizing I was gay, um, just getting all that sort of my head, which took me ages, took me years, has really, I've, I've, I've got a narrative now which puts me more on the sort of masculine identified side than the feminine, undoubtedly. Um, that's, and that's got nothing to do with the way I, my body presents. Obviously, I'm absolutely uh, feminine in presentation, biological presentation, as it were. Um, so yeah, I, I, although I never really talk about it because for a start, I think it will just be ridiculed. I, I'm fully aware of, you know, why you might have um, strong feelings around um, your sex and they might be negative feelings. I'm very aware of that. Do you think that your, um, your willingness to speak out and uh, take some hits and, and be controversial is a masculine trait? <laughs> well, no, I don't know. No, I mean, we talk about these things as social, aren't we? So socially, yes, in the sense that it's um, for most cultures, if you had to make a choice, between, if you had to say what is, um, I don't know how we'd characterize what I've been doing, but like um, women are characterized as more as more kind of socially conforming, aren't they? I think. Yeah, according compliance to or yeah. what's the yeah? What are the the five traits? One of them is um, uh, it's not compliance, but agreeableness. Agreeableness, yeah. Well, I I'm not I haven't been that agreeable uh, lately, and I'm less and less inclined actually. Well, because be you agreeable. you write in the introduction, I definitely count as a heretic, and this yeah. that suits me fine. I didn't become a professional philosopher to go to church. And um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think great. I'm just very annoyed at my profession, to be honest. Although there are very there are lots of vulnerable exceptions, but you know, I went into philosophy thinking that here was an arena where we could slug it out conversationally and I know people who will philosophers who will argue with me about literally anything um I used to be Facebook friends with lots of philosophers not so much anymore but you know I used to be friends with them and I'd see them arguing about tiny tiny matters that no one gives a toss about out in the world and then this comes along this big issue about identity and politics and policies and you know, and they suddenly just go deathly quiet. And I just thought, oh my God, what were you doing it for? You know, this was, this is our time. This is our moment. In, and and they've just faded away. Some of them, not all of them, but. And why is that? Because I, I, I feel this way about a number of different issues that are kind of flying around right mm. now. It's like, this is so interesting. I keep saying to people like, this is the best show in town talking about this stuff. Why? Are you ducking it? Is it well, because they're, they're just they're just sheep? Like they're mm. they're frightened and they don't want people to be mad at them? Like or they don't well, want a certain kind of person to be mad at them. I think a lot of them are frightened. If I have depends on which day you're talking to me. If I was to be maximally charitable, which I suppose I should try, um, it's true that in the UK at the moment there's huge 
potential professional consequences to saying what I'm saying. So I've actually, um, I've suffered, well, anyway, you know, people are worried about their jobs. I'm not worried about my job at the moment, but I I have been worried about various professional censure um, as I've proceeded. So it's, it's, it's reasonable to worry about your job, and especially if you're not um, tenured or, you know, you've got promotion ahead of you or whatever. But at the top level, the professors, I really don't know what their excuse is, to be honest. Yeah, that's what I don't understand, people who have tenure. I mean, I had a I had a guest a few weeks ago um, who is the the chair of this new organization called the um, the uh, Academic Freedom uh, Association. I believe that's what it is, Academic Freedom Foundation. And it's like apparently even tenured professors are afraid of the consequences. Yeah. And I thought that was the whole tenure. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you look at the statues of UK universities, it says things like you should have you know, it's part of the object of universities to test controversial opinions. Um, but right, I guess what are you they, doing are here? Yeah. Sheep, they are more sheep-like than I realized some people. I had not realized how, how sheep-like they are. I guess also people, there's a lot of, um, as we saw in the beginning, there's a lot of complexity or at least um, complication around gen the ideas of gender the terminology is quite complicated then you think oh do I have to know about intersex because that's really complicated and I guess you might just think oh it, I just don't understand this stuff and I don't want to say the wrong thing but <laughs> it's like it, you got a PhD you, yeah, you're exactly. to say I, I don't want to understand it it's too complicated it's also affecting a, a large number of people because the lie of the activists is that this is just about trans people, but of course they're changing policies which are changing the definition of woman, then that's 51% of the population. So it's kind of important. What have been the consequences for you? Are you are you shunned on campus? Do you have <laughs> students who are like afraid to take your class or who want to take mm. it but don't want to be seen taking it? Like what, what's your relationship to other faculty and, and to students? Actually, I'm really interested yeah. in that. Well, I never see the ones that don't want to take my classes, obviously. So I don't have a complete overview because they wouldn't go anywhere near me. And, I, and I'm sure there are some like that. But I have to say, on on the whole, my relationships with students have stayed what they always were, which is good. And I don't think, I think the idea, the sort of paranoid worry about the snowflake on campus is is not right. It's on campus... Uh, as probably everywhere else, like the majority of people are open-minded and they might not agree with me, but they're not going to like um, try and get me sacked uh, at all. However, there are a small bunch of ideologues or zealots or whatever you want to call them, people who are really, really angry with me, both in the student population and in faculty and they speak very loudly and they will go and, you know, complain about me, put me through official complaints procedures, write to my bosses and so on. So they will be active. And in a way, they have a chilling effect on the rest because, you know, people get intimidated around them. So then they don't want to say, hang on a minute, are you sure it's a bit more complicated than that or something, you know? So I think this is the structure that we're seeing in all, all over the place, not just campuses in organizations generally, that there's a small bunch of very um, vocal activist style people who really think that they're doing the work of social justice by trying to get me fired, for instance. Um, 
And then there's a whole other bunch that probably disagree, but are intimidated by them. What kinds of classes do you teach? Do they all have to do with this? I mean, no, no, no. Only, only, well, actually, at the moment, I teach feminist philosophy. So, mm-hmm. um, and I have one class on within that on this. But most of the time, I'm just talking about like um, classic issues from radical liberal feminism. And then I also teach at the moment ethics, and that's kind of metaphysics of ethics. And I teach aesthetics and I teach a course called Language, Truth and Literature. So, yeah, I'm teaching in quite a wide, wide range of things. And thank, thankfully, a lot of it is relatively apolitical, which is quite nice for me. They don't they don't they don't notice any of that. So what what's been your involvement in terms of policy? I think did you speak to the to the House of Lords or what's your have you become a sure. sort of um, political uh, figure? Yeah, I guess I activist? have. Um, I've, I get, yeah, so I, I did an event at the House of Lords a few years ago. Most recently, I gave oral evidence to a um, parliamentary committee who are doing yet another uh, public consultation on gender recognition reform. Um, but, and I was pleased to be invited to give some evidence there. And um, I've written various um, witness statements for judicial reviews. Um, so I've also got an interest because of this on free speech uh, or academic freedom. So that's free speech within universities because we have this, um, I think, really um, non-optimal situation in UK universities where trans activist organisations are deeply embedded in UK universities. And this just turns universities into kind of trans activist organisations and it makes it so much harder for me to and people who have my views to say what we think and I want to stress as well that this is not you know I think that's bad it's obviously bad for me but the the real bad aspect is that we're just not getting good academic data about all the things that we've been talking about that's the problem that um, we don't know um, enough about the effects of puberty blockers on children or what's going on in single sex spaces or um, what will happen if people can self-identify their way into um, uh, single-set schools or sports or whatever? So that's the problem, that there's a knowledge gap uh, because people like me um, are being intimidated in silence. Well, I'm have not, you ha- <laughs> but other people are. Have you had any involvement in the uh, stuff going on at the Tavistock Clinic, that this is the... Um... The, no. uh, the the gender clinic uh, in, in London that was recently sure. there was a lot a lawsuit um, a number of young people who are now detransitioners uh, are suing the or at least one well uh, one sued, sued the judici- clinic one yeah. yeah it's called a judicial review so it's um it's not exactly suing but anyway I, it doesn't matter the point is that um this very brave detransitioner called Kira Bell um took a judicial review out against um the NHS Tavistock Gender Identity Service. So, um, and it's about their use of puberty blockers. Um, so no, I haven't had anything to do with that. Although I have met Kira Bell once, and which I was proud to do. Um, I think what's amazing about the UK is we've got all these, this situation and the fact that gender identity um, theory is so prevalent over here and so kind of unquestioned by national institutions who've just kind of taken it wholesale from lobbying organizations 
this has caused a backlash where grassroots feminist organizations are coming up, um, some of them representing interests of children, some of them representing interests of, of women athletes, some of them representing working class women, and just kind of saying, no, we need to be in on these conversations. So um, Kira was backed by this amazing organization called Transgender Trend. And if you look, if your listeners are interested, you can look them up. They've got a huge amount of resources about um, gender identity ideology in schools and how to deal, well, not deal with, you know, how to support gender non-conforming children, um, people, children with gender identity disorders. It's all written from a really sensible, evidence-based perspective. They're commonly, you know, if you look them up again, you'll find people saying they're a hate group. They are not a hate group in any way. They are, yeah, they are well. advocating. It doesn't for, take much to be no, a hate group. It really doesn't. Days. They advocate for watchful waiting for children with gender, gender identity dis, disorders. And I think that's the most sensible path by far. Yeah. Um, I'm going to wrap up in a, a few minutes here. But actually, just it, it occurs to me, I, I feel like I would be. Uh, kicking myself if I didn't take this opportunity to ask you, what do you think of J.K. Rowling? What is she doing? What did she ever say? Because I feel like I've been following like 80% of it, but is there, is, how, how do you feel about her as a, as a voice in all of this? I think she's amazing. And um, I feel, I take sort of some kind of vicarious pride in, in her first intervention or her, one of her main sort of the one everyone knows about because there's this case it, the the um context was a, a legal case in the UK involving a woman called Maya Forstatter who right. had made various tweets that said things like um oh gosh I'm going to get it wrong now but basically that people can't change sex she thinks you know people can't change sex and she was tweeting from a kind of gender critical perspective but um and she was fired, right? Was she, 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 she her was... contract was terminated, so she took her okay. employees to an employment tribunal and she lost. And the judge said that this belief that she had, that people cannot change sex, I'd have to go and look at the details again, but you know, people cannot change sex, something like that, was not worthy of respect in a democratic society. <laughs> so I wrote a blog post, Furious, and I wrote hashtag, oh, no, I wrote this is, and it was, the blog post was called, this is not a drill. And then JK Rowling must have read it. But anyway, she tweeted her famous tweet and wrote hashtag, this is not a drill. So I was like, oh, amazing. That, that, that connection really <laughs> makes me uh, very proud. But the general point is she, um, she sees what I think are the problems. Uh, and I think she sees them very in a very clear-eyed way. And she must have known she'd get a backlash. She must have known she would. And she did it anyway. Um, and she hasn't wavered. So I think she's compassionate. She's um, got coming from a very good place. So even if, you know, you think she's wrong about it, you cannot deny her good intentions, her warmth, and her desire to do the right thing by young adults. So um, from all those perspectives, I think she's impeccable. And I happen to agree with her as well. So I think she's brilliant. Okay. Thank you for thank you for articulating that so concisely. So <laughs> just you know, you you the last chapter of the book is called A Better Activism in the Future. You explain how there is this binary, so to speak, within mm. women reacting to the trans movement. There are the radical feminists, the gender critical feminists versus the trans activists and what you call the, the third wave feminists. What would you like to see? happen both mm. in, in philosophy on a theoretical level and just 
on, on a practical level, like how the prison question seems particularly uh, difficult to, to resolve that. I don't, like, yeah. are we supposed to just build prisons for, for, for trans people? Are we supposed to have sports teams for trans people? It's really hard. It's really, really, well, it, it's hard. But it's, it's not impossible. And in fact, there's an, in the UK, um, there is now a, a wing of a prison um, for trans people. Um, so that is for obviously to, trans people convicted of crimes and sent to prison are sent to this wing. Um, okay. Although there are also still, I believe, um, males in in the female prison system in the UK. Um, but generally speaking, I think that's that's the the approach that should be taken. It shouldn't be the assumption should the fault assumption should not be oh either this person goes into the male space or they go into the female space and those are the two only two options. There is a possibility in in many contexts of having a third option. Um, now, as I think, there's not going to be a one solution fits all for every problem. But for sports, for instance, that whole um, that whole problem is being presented very tendentiously as the idea that trans people do not have a right to compete in sporting competition. Well, of course they do. <laughs> um, they could compete in the sporting category reserved for their sex and actually some trans people do so I don't think and they do happily so there are trans women competing in male football teams for instance so okay you know, trans not, women okay and the male football teams are okay um, welcoming well, them yes I mean like so so I'm not saying that's going to work everywhere I'm not saying that they, you know alternatives shouldn't be explored but we don't just have one solution for every kind of problem here. I think um, what we do need to get away from is the idea that um, the only possible solution for all of this is that women should budge up, make room, you know, sacrifice their own interests and shut up, which seems to be the way it's being presented at the moment. Now, clearly that is not sustainable. So there has to be communication. It has to be evidence-based. We have to have academics precisely looking into um, the likely scenarios, not from a politicized activist perspective, but from a kind of more sober, evidence-based, um, more neutral perspective, and really work out together in conjunction with trans people what's in their interest. Another thing to add here, I think, which I'd really like to to mention is that many, many trans people are very unhappy with the way trans activist organizations represent their interests. Yes, that's huge. So I'm we should not take it as read that when, you know, the ACLU or GLAD find, um, you know, their present their their favored version of events for trans people, of their favorite, their favored policy, that that will that was you know, produced by consensus with the trans community. Um, the trans community is diverse, it's politically diverse and um, geographically diverse, and it, there's a huge age range. So, um, and it also encompasses this split we mentioned before between transsexuals who have had major significant surgery over the course of a long time and, and hormones over a long time, and people who haven't made any bodily changes and have. Um, a non-standard gender identity so 
of course they're going to have different answers for certain questions and so that's another area academia needs to get in and find out properly find out like what trans people think yeah what why aren't there more um trans people who are not the 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 radical trans activists that we hear most often from are they just not stepping up are they being silenced like where Um, are they well i think also one thing we do have to remember is that if you are a transsexual and you've lived happily sort of under the radar in your community for years it's difficult to have a conversation with people you may not have even disclosed that you're transsexual so they didn't you know many transsexuals I get letters from transsexuals saying, you know, I don't want to be a political activist. I don't want to have to come out and um, make demands on behalf of the trans community. But of course, this leaves a vacuum where other people will fill that gap and they may have very different views to you. So I don't know. I mean, we've got technology. There's got to be ways to do interviews, you know, to do studies um, with large numbers of people where the proper kind of academic uh, standards are maintained and it's not a political exercise to come up with an answer that's identified in advance. Uh, That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. We just need, we don't necessarily need new trans activists, I don't think, but we do need a better understanding of trans people's needs that doesn't just come from a few voices. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been a really, uh, really illuminating and accessible conversation. I hope so. Thank you. Thanks for everything you've done and are doing and um, good luck going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. Same to you. That was my interview with Kathleen Stock. She is a professor of philosophy at the University of Sussex in England. Her book, Material Girls, Why Reality Matters for Feminism, was published by Little Brown last week in the UK and is available everywhere on Kindle. The US edition of the book will be published on September 21st. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like ad-free editions of this podcast, please support it at any level on the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash theunspeakable. There, you can get lots of perks, including if you join at the $10 a month level or higher, $10 off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. You can find the items in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. 
Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.